This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today, I am speaking with Lance Nearby, CEO of Montana Silversmiths, the makers of fine trophy buckles and Western jewelry. I think that the spirit of Montana is focused on just figuring it out. What are the challenges and, and how are we going to create solutions to our challenges? And so Montanans are just bred for that. This year, Montana Silversmiths is celebrating 50 years in business and their buckles feature prominently on the hugely popular Yellowstone series. Lance, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I grew up in Minnesota. My dad was a veterinarian and my mom is an interior designer. And um, so I kind of have a scientific and a creative mind. Yeah. So that upbringing explains Carleton College to some degree, but why did you decide to study metalwork in college? My best friend was actually killed in a motorcycle accident when I was uh, going into my sophomore year. And that, you know, kind of really made me stop and think. And, you know, when tragedy strikes your life, you kind of take stock of like, what is your plan and what do you believe in and all that stuff. Yeah. And so prior to that, I was still really searching what kind of major I would uh, be uh, focused on at Carleton, found my way to the art art program and met a bunch of talented um, uh, teachers there. And I really fell in line with uh, just the community that was at uh, with the art program. And then that helped me kind of explore what I was going through with the death of my best friend, how to talk about that and deal with those feelings. And so Art helped me just process that. A professor named Tim Lloyd was the metals professor and also the pottery professor at the time. And I just had like a, just a really good knack for working in metals. And he took me under his wing and I just continued to take classes from him. And it just uh, was a really good fit. At that point, pursuing art, in particular metalwork as a career, what you were thinking, I mean, shortly after that, you go on to an MFA. Talk about that kind of early career uh, transition for you. Kind of at that same time, I had injured my back about halfway through college. I had to take a base, almost a whole year off and I had surgery on my lower spine. Wow. And uh, so I had to, you know, coming back into school, I couldn't sit. I had such bad uh, neuropathy in my left leg that I couldn't sit longer than about 10 minutes. And so I had to be active. With the art program, I could be very active like throughout a class period mm-hmm. with that focus on like I, I need to be active and I'm still trying to figure out what I can do in life now that I have, you know, this kind of this injury. Carlton allowed this uh, amazing opportunity to go study abroad in uh, the Cook Islands, New Zealand and Australia. Wow. And so I was fortunate enough to be uh, part of that program for a whole trimester and that was just absolutely incredible. During my senior year, I started abroad in Italy as well, all the while not being able to sit longer than like 10 minutes. So I went through years of that. The ability to utilize art in your life and think about a career path was kind of secondary to just like, I'm just trying to get through, get an education and um, knew that I was creative and this program really fit my style. 
But then you graduate and you're like, oh, what am I going to do? Sure. Still yeah. at that time, I still had a lot of pain and um, it was kind of debilitating. So a friend of mine introduced me to a wooden boat restoration shop in St. Paul, Minnesota. After I graduated, then I went to work for this guy that was basically restoring old wooden crisscraft boats. Mm-hmm. And so again, it was able I was able to be indoors, but also um, active. And that kind of allowed me to kind of regroup and heal and just continue to hone craft. And I realized that I'm really not an artist. I'm a, I'm more in tune with like a master craftsman. Okay. So that that kind of led me down the the road of like I really enjoyed the practice of creation and building and the process. And so I one summer then that uh, that following summer as I'm working at the wooden boat uh, uh, shop, I met back with my professors at Carleton and said like Can you help me understand like what can my future be? And so they counseled me into going on to an MFA program where I could gain a lot of technical skills. And that's what led me to Rochester Institute of Technology, where I spent two years at an MFA program in metal, sculpture, and jewelry, because it was really, really focused on on, uh, technical skills. So like mastering the craft of metal creation. Yeah. And in that story, you made a distinction between art and craft. And, and, And for the listener, just draw that out a little bit. How do you distinguish between those two things? Art is is taking an idea out of thin air and almost birthing it into reality, okay. where craft is more so mastering a process. You know, that's where I really just enjoyed the creation of the process of creating items. So when and how did you land at Tiffany? So what an amazing turn of events. You go from, um, you know, laying underneath a old wooden boat, scraping right. lead off, you know, on the cold floor in St. Paul, Minnesota, next to the river, wondering what am I going to do with my life, um, to working at Tiffany & Company. So I won a scholarship while I was at RIT. It was kind of an MVP scholarship that there was a relationship with the professor of the school and Tiffany & Company. So I was awarded that scholarship and it really helped fund my second year of school at, at RIT. And through that, I just saw this opportunity that I have to meet this foundations group that gave this scholarship. And they're the ones that uh, got me in touch with the manager of a shop at Tiffany's called Hollowware. This shop was the legacy of the company and they still had tooling that was created back at the founding of the company. They made room and brought me on board with the group. And so I just spent that first year then learning under these master craftsmen. And it was just an incredible experience. Yeah. What a fantastic transition. And in that time at at Tiffany and in your role now, which we'll get to, you kind of make the jump from, you know, being the maker of things to being a leader of people. Talk about that transition and when you became interested in kind of the leadership aspect of, of, of this industry. That kind of transition speaks to like my upbringing. You know, I have this very creative uh, mother and my father was very scientific. And so I kind of had both of those elements. And so very process orientated mm-hmm. and um, the vice president of manufacturing at Tiffany's at the time named Mike Kane, who I give a lot of credit to, 
he had a meeting with our small group one time and just said, you know, we all need to have like a list of a thousand things that we want to improve upon. He was a continuous improvement style leader. And so the next time that he was down in New Jersey at our facility, you know, another meeting, I, after that, I took the opportunity to just give him my list of 168 items inside of the facility that I thought we should improve upon. It was little things like, you know, this table leg is wobbly. Let's mm-hmm. fix that because you can equate like having a solid infrastructure and like a table that's not wobbling all over the place with health and safety and efficiency and the whole thing. Like, let's actually do it right. About a year later, they were looking for a replacement. And so uh, Mike Kane came to me and said, hey, you've got a big decision here. You can literally change the course of your life in one decision, but it's it's going to be, it's going to require you to leave what you love and embrace something that is that is brand new. He wasn't wrong because that transition was very difficult. Um, going from an individual contributor in any sense of the word and, and going to a pure leader and then a leader is, is a very tough transition. I accepted that challenge. It was very difficult. I was trying to build the FedEx Cup silver trophy. This was in like 2011, maybe. Okay, then this is a giant golf trophy for a golf tournament. Yeah, a right? giant golf trophy has a huge titanium golf ball in the center, a silver pyramid below it has these huge silver handles and this kind of this silver dish above. And so I'm in the middle of like building that trophy. So I hadn't um, trained anybody else to do that one. So I was like, ah, I got to now run the shop and I still got to build this trophy. So <laughs> and now, <laughs> uh, but it just showed that it was very difficult to have a foot in both worlds where I was trying to learn how to be a good leader and then also like be responsible for a timeline and got to get this trophy done so we don't fall on our face. So I learned a lot in that uh, initial, you know, even the initial three months where I had to go through that pain and agony because I wanted to do a good job. At the same time, it was a very weird position to be in, to become a pure leader and then have to evaluate people. And that, the, the biggest thing I learned out of that is when you screw up, if you actually apologize and mean it, in a heartfelt way, your team wants you to succeed. They actually want you to be a good leader. So you have to be aware that when you really don't know what you're doing, you're just doing your best. If you can actually just admit that to your team, they're going to be there for you. So at some point along the way, you decided to answer the call from a company in Montana. Talk about that leap. How did Montana Silversmiths get on your radar screen? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was continued to be afforded more and more opportunities at Tiffany's. So all these things kept lining up and it was I was doing really well. And I had never thought about ever leaving Tiffany's because it, it was just such a fantastic organization to work for. The amount of training they would put you through and in, in leadership development was fa- like just absolutely fantastic. Great mentors. Then I get a recruiter that texts me over Labor Day weekend of 2016 seemed like an incredible opportunity to, and they were hiring for a vice president of, of operations and that process side of me, which is what I'd been really focusing on for the previous about four or five years, developing teams and leading, leading teams and came out for a recruiting visit. And I walked through the facility and I was just so excited about how this team actually builds their tooling to create production items. And it's the tooling is made by hand and it's just beautiful engraving. And I had not been exposed to engraving at that level and at that quality, even at Tiffany's. We were our engravers because we had 
I don't know, 20 engravers in one of our engraving shops, they were focused on like linear letters and um, like flat designs where Montana silversmiths is just embellishing the entire surface of our jewelry and our, and our buckles. And so just seeing how we do that, I knew I couldn't pass it up. I had to come out and learn the process. It was just too intriguing to let go. You mentioned the tooling. So part of the magic of this form of craft is creating the tools you need to then do the art. In the jewelry world, the majority of processes, the the items you go and buy at any one of the jewelry stores, the majority of those those rings or those necklaces or those pendants are cast. And okay. so this day and age, you know, you can 3D print you know, a design and make a master and cast it, but the surface is generally going to be smooth and shiny. And so you're, you're limited to your aesthetic because the surface has to be smooth and shiny. And Tiffany's was no different, whether we were die striking or machining or casting rings and, and jewelry and pendants and bracelets, everything was just smooth and shiny, very contemporary, modern look, but in my mind, quite boring. Mm-hmm. And so when I saw how the Montana Silversmith has this beautiful bright cut engraving filigree that is all engraved by hand. I was like, how are they even doing that? Because our price points at Montana Silversmiths, our best selling price point for women's jewelry is $65. Wow. And I come I was coming from a luxury brand that, yeah. you know, our our entry level price point was like, you know, uh, multiple thousands. And so it was just such a different world. Like, how are we actually building things that have a margin that you can sell for 65 bucks? And so that's how, when you talk about tooling, that's where this understanding on how to mass produce items, but still have them to be embellished and look like they're made by hand, it becomes very important how you're building the tooling behind the scenes to create those looks. We'll be back to my conversation with Lance Nearby after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. This is John Twiggs with Montana PBS, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Lance Nearby, CEO of Montana Silversmiths. I know that your company is celebrating it's 50th year in business and there's a rich deep tradition of this sort of artistic craft in making some of the most beautiful belt buckles and other forms of western jewelry in the world H- how do y'all do it and what's the sort of the story behind how that um you know the, the magic that you saw that captivated you on your interview what's the story about how that came to be yeah so montana silversmiths is a pretty unique company um, it was started by a gentleman named uh, Kent Williams in 1973 as an awards company. He started to see the Western industry at the time uh, needing what what we would call trophy buckles, so belt buckles that are customized to be given out at uh, rodeos for um, uh, athletes who have won or placed at uh, different um, levels. Mm-hmm. And so he started to expand. But at the time, this is in the early 70s, he wasn't able to manufacture anything uh, really yet in Montana. So by the mid-70s, he was still buying kind of like the base components of belt buckles from vendors down in Texas. And then 
he would he bought out some of their tooling and he started to figure out how to build it up here. And then he partnered with it, it, historically the East Coast, the Rhode Island and Massachusetts area was just this incredible um, hotbed for jewelry manufacturing and design. And so there is tons and tons of different companies out there that were designing and manufacturing jewelry. So he, he went out there, did a lot of trips out there to understand the process, and then finally met a toolmaker that could help him create Western um, style engraved uh, jewelry. And at the time, it was tack. So tack is uh, metal parts added to leather parts for horses, you know, okay. whether it's halters or um, horn caps on saddles. So, because at the time, nobody was mass producing those items. It was all done by hand. Every single tack item or belt buckle was made by hand, engraved by hand. So once he was able to develop tooling, he brought the those samples to some um, saddle makers down in the Tennessee area. And uh, he told them the price and they're like, holy cow, how do we place an order right now? Because his price was way low compared wow. to other manufacturers because other manufacturers were still making everything by hand. And so mm-hmm. It's really Kent's understanding that if we can create a high quality item at this affordable price, but still have it, no one knows that it's actually mass produced. It's so beautiful and looks like it's actually made by hand, but it's mass produced that that was going to be his ticket. So you've been with the company since 2016, took over the CEO role this last year. In that uh, timeline, you also earned an MBA degree here at the University of Montana. Talk about your decision to get some more uh, business training along the way. I was really resistant to it in my early days out here. But then by 2019, the pandemic had basically started and we had gotten through that. And I was looking for like, I want to eventually one day run this company. And what's it going to take to be able to do that? Right. And so I knew that um, our ownership group would give me a shot if I had an MBA, because then that proves that I actually value that side of the business, the you know the financial understanding of what it takes to run a business, and and you know those three letters would would prove to them that I actually could do that side of the business. So we kind of lined it up that I took over the CEO role uh, January first of twenty twenty three. And I graduated then in the spring of 23. So it all kind of worked out nicely and they really responded well to my dedication to be a full-time student and full-time employee and leader. Yeah. And going from, you know, a company, one of the, like, like Tiffany, one of the, you know, premier brands in the world to a much smaller operation in a much more remote part of the world. Talk about doing business from the Billings area, what that's like as far as finding the talent you need to do the jobs you need to do and getting access to supplies and being able to ship your products out to where you need them to go. What's what's it like doing business from the Billings area? Tiffany's, we had just uh, an incredible ability to uh, and resources to advance um, our manufacturing capabilities and technique. When you come to Montana and you have a much smaller business and you have a lot less resources, you got to think very creatively on on what is going to have the biggest impact for everybody in the business so that that you can advance, you can become more efficient and you can grow your margin to the most effective way possible. Then being in Montana, being in Columbus, which is west of Billings by about 30 miles, 
the employee base is very small. Columbus is a town of basically a thousand and Stillwater County is is kind of spread out. The majority of our employees are come from a 20 mile radius in and around Columbus. So that creates its own challenges where as you're growing, which we have been on this growth trajectory for the last four years now, you have to think very creatively on how you design your products so that you can maintain throughput and increase your throughput with a very static employee base number. We kind of capped out our growth. We make 40% of our items here and we ship about 1.4 million units out of Columbus a year. And 40% of those are made right here in Columbus on the banks of the Yellowstone River. And then we're forced to go to other manufacturers to um, get the throughput required to sustain the business from you know anywhere from uh, the East Coast. We do some oper- operation for production on the East Coast. We do it down in Mexico and then uh, India, Thailand, Taiwan, and China, So, uh, as well as Costa Rica. So we had to get really diverse about our supply chains because we just couldn't support our growth just based off of Columbus manufacturing. I would assume some of the growth that you've you referenced there is fueled by some of the amazing partnerships that you've been able to secure. I know your buckles have been featured prominently on the Yellowstone series and used as prizes and awards at some of the highest level rodeo competitions in the world. Talk about your use of partnerships and, and how you've been able to secure the many partnerships you have. Yeah. If you know, inside of the Western industry, our partnership with Yellowstone was just a natural fit. The funny thing is they uh, came to us um, basically uh, because they were shooting in Montana and somebody knew there was a Montana silversmith store in Columbus. And so they stopped by and they had us make uh, specialized buckles, I think, for their crew or their cast or something. And we had no idea what it was. And then once we start to unpack it more, we realized, holy cow, what it, what is this thing for real? then we entered into a licensing agreement with them and um, that was very nice for us. I think it just expanded the eyeballs on the Western aesthetic and that was that was a, uh, a definitely a part of our growth over since 2019 in and around that time period. Um, so you know we, we're always on the lookout for really solid partners that um, can help us grow. We have a partnership with Rocky Mountain uh, Elk Foundation. We have a partnerships with a ton of different rodeos. We just continue to see growth inside of the Western industry as well as outside. How do you think about, you mentioned growth and the constraints on growth and your, your ability to sort of seek manufacturing opportunities elsewhere. What do you see as the future of manufacturing in Montana? You know, is, it, is, it, is this a place where we can continue to, to, to make and build things? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the spirit of Montana is focused on just figuring it out. So what are the challenges and and how are we going to uh, create solutions to our challenges? And so Montanans are just bred for that. You know, kind of Montana is self-sufficient and it's this ability to kind of just be um, entrepreneurs and explorers and not afraid of, of new options and new cha- new challenges. And, and it's really fun to be a part of a group that just embraces um, identifying new ways to do things. You've been in the CEO role less than a year. What has been the most scary thing that you've faced in that job? You know, it's coming with the realization that like I kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, every decision matters. 
Mm-hmm. The leader of this company has to be so focused on the fundamentals, the fundamental drivers of the business, and you can't get distracted with, um, there's so much opportunity out there, but we only have the capacity to handle so much. And so we have to be very, very focused on what is our business model and what do we do every single day to maximize that versus looking for a, you know, and being blinded by all these other opportunities that are out there. Could you ever have imagined how the show Yellowstone has had such a profound effect on the fashion industry? I mean, you, you, you go to New York City, I was in New York City last fall, and you see people walking around in like glamorous cowboy outfits, or at least their version of a glamorous cowboy outfit. And you know, buckles like yours are featured prominently in, in that sort of fashion. That's just sort of a turn of events that kind of hard to predict, I would think. Yeah, I think it's hard to predict. At the same time, I think what Yellowstone actually did was touch on just the underlying current that is Western and always has been Western. And the reason I say that is I looked at a, I pulled some statistics and I looked at how many Western focused movie releases have there been over time since the mid sixties. And it's, it's a, it's kind of about one or two a year for so many years. And you get to the eighties and urban cowboy happens and then it starts to slowly grow. And so Yellowstone actually capitalized on the fact that Americans love the West it's like this ideal of what they want to be and you know what those pioneers stood for and it's just this feeling of like grit and determination and so yellowstone was able to to harness that into one single show but at the same time the amount of western uh, creative shows that were out there was at an all-time high before yellowstone even came out well lance we're at the end of our time unless there's anything else you want to make sure we got on the uh it on the record. No, I think overall, I think that this company is just so fun to be a part of because it's good people building really high quality items right here in Montana and they're affordable. Like that's where there was a disconnect in my previous past when I was working at Tiffany's because nothing I made there was ever being able to be purchased by anybody that I knew because it was so expensive. Where here we build items every single day that anybody can go to their local um, you know, farm and ranch store and pick up a necklace or some jewelry for 65 bucks or a belt buckle for a couple hundred dollars, or you can get it personalized. Like we can literally personalize everything that we offer. So it's just a really fun way to be connected with our surrounding community. And Montana Silversmiths gives back a ton. So we've just entered into a relationship with Folds of Honor, which supports Gold Star families from the military. Um, we have we have a Pursuit of Excellence uh, scholarship program where we give back to uh, kids that are that are getting into college and looking to advance their career on that side of the business. So there's a lot of things that we focus on, not just, you know, continuing to grow the company, but we always want to be focused on how we impact the community around us and what we can do to give back. Super. Well, Lance, thank you so much for for joining us today, telling us all about your background in Montana Silversmiths and um yeah, we wish you all the best and, and hopefully can check in again down the road. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49. 
generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. Ella Hall is our production assistant. VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.